Hello, it's Wednesday 22nd of March. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowerman and I will round up the top travel and tourism talking points from March 2023 so far. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So travel and tourism activity continues to ramp up across Southeast Asia, including us. Hannah is currently in Cambodia, and I'm just back from Langkawi. So today we'll take a look through some of the top travel news stories from March 2023. But firstly, let's begin with ITB Berlin, which took place in the German capital at the start of this month for the last I don't know, 50 years or so, it's been a highlight of the annual travel and tourism calendar. It was cancelled, if you remember, right at the start of the pandemic outbreak in 2020, but it returned this year. Hannah, you were there. I've been hearing some mixed reports about it this year. What were your impressions? Yeah, well, I mean, it was my first time ever um, to go to ITB Berlin. Um, So that in itself was a shock, right? The sheer size of it it's you know like a a city center not just an exhibition hall you know on the first day I walked 18,000 steps just just around so like the size of it was mind-boggling um but overall I mean I can say I I really saw the excitement there I think people were so happy to be back um in person meeting people again I saw a really packed conference schedule but I didn't get to attend any of the sessions. Um, but what I thought was was very interesting was just experiencing that kind of European flavor, I suppose, of, of where the tourism industry is at and what's going on kind of politically, I suppose, around Europe. So the opening ceremony, um, which was the, the night before the show opens, I would say I was very surprised by such a strong anti-Russian rhetoric um, and perhaps our listeners in Europe wouldn't be surprised by that at all. Um, but I suppose, Gary, you and I here in Southeast Asia, we don't have that constant barrage of news about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine here in Southeast Asia that the press don't tend to really cover it very much. But it was very political, I'd say, the opening ceremony. Um, so there was a speech by the Secretary General for, for the UNWTO, who kind of started off talking about the the Russia-Ukraine conflict and how they had kicked Russia out from UNWTO, and that got a big round of applause from the audience. Um, There was a German minister there as well who was being very, very strong um, in what he was saying about um, condemning Russia. And it really made me realize that actually these, these tensions around Russia's war on Ukraine really permeate, I think, the tourism industry and how the tourism industry is feeling in Europe right now, whereas in Southeast Asia, it's there is some talk about Russia, and we'll talk about that later in the, the show today. But it's not really in the context of Russia, Ukraine, or what that could potentially mean um, as a conflict for Europe, right? Yeah, that's fascinating. You're absolutely right. You know, the, the hemispheres have kind of diverged very much on this issue, I would say, particularly in the news agenda, as you say. In, in the actual hall itself, Hannah, I've heard uh, some destinations were missing this year. China didn't have any representation, didn't have a booth. Who was there from Southeast Asia? Yeah, we had a huge representation, actually. So Cambodia were there with a small booth. Indonesia, pretty medium-sized one. Um, Malaysia was there, both Malaysia and the Malaysian Association of Tour and Travel Agents. Mata had their own kind of rival booth. And Sarawak, the state, also had its own 
booth as well, which is for the first time. So it was outside of the Malaysia Pavilion. Philippines had a nice big booth there. Singapore had a booth. Thailand had an entire hall. So not only was it Thailand, but also Phuket was there. I think Pattaya, Koh Samui as well, some of the other regions. Um, and Vietnam. So in terms of the countries that we tend to cover, the only, you know, ASEAN, the only countries that were missing were Laos and Brunei. Everybody else was there. Everybody else was was representing. Um, so it was great to see even Myanmar <laughs> were there. Now, their booth, I have to say, was very quiet. I didn't go and ask them whether this was, you know, is this directly from the ministry or is this one of the, the tourism associations that represent Myanmar? you know, putting this together on their behalf. So I'm not sure how linked that is to the gender or not. Certainly it was never busy when I walked past it. Um, but other booths, you know, Vietnam, Indonesia, very busy, had their, their, their showcases on. And a lot of the tourism ministers were also there. You know, I was also kind of almost doing a tourism minister safari, <laughs> walking around the show floor and I spotted CEO of Singapore Tourism Board. I spotted, you know, Pak Sandy from Indonesian. Um, the, the minister there. I, I spotted Christina uh, Garcia Frasco from, from the Philippines at the Philippines booth. So there was a really big presence. And through that, you can kind of feel that all of these tourism boards across the region here are were really putting a great emphasis on being at ITB Berlin. You know, they, they were really stamping it. The government were taking it extremely seriously by being there. And I think that's only a good thing. Yeah, that's a fascinating roundup. Thanks for that, Hannah. That sets up nicely for us to, to bring it back home, really, and talk about some of the key issues uh, in our region over the past two or three weeks. Let's start in Vietnam. Now, normally, Hannah, when we talk about a projection or a forecast story, it's usually related to Thailand. Uh, but this time, Vietnam is, is, is getting its numbers crunched. Tell us a bit more. Yeah, so Vietnam have announced that they are planning to welcome 110 million tourists in 2023. So that's not all international tourists before before you start rolling your eyes. That's uh, around 8 million foreigners and the rest domestic tourists. Um, now, it was kind of interesting because in, in this same news article, it was talking about how last year there were about 3.7 million international visitors who visited Vietnam, which they the article had said exceeded the yearly target, um, which was not quite true they actually targeted five million and as we know and we've discussed earlier in in the year gary you know vietnam did fall short of these expectations and a lot of this the trade is putting down to these kind of restrictive visa requirements the fact that you only get a 15-day visa that there are visa waivers but only for 13 selected countries plus the ASEAN countries. So they've kind of limited themselves there. Now, there is a little bit of news in that, in that the prime minister has again, um, and I say again because there tends to be a lot of talk about this and not much action yet, but the prime minister last week did instruct agencies that they should be looking at expanding that visa waiver scheme um, to more nationalities and looking around that duration as well. But whether that will happen, what that will look like, what kind of timeline that will be on, it's kind of unclear to say. And, you know, we're already in Q1, um, particularly if they're looking at the long-haul markets. Long-haul markets tend to book further in advance. So if they're looking for the summer, they may well have already missed that boat. Okay, so Hannah, I've been crunching the numbers and I look back at 2019 to see uh, how the projections for this year compare to what we saw before the pandemic. So in 2019, Vietnam received 18 million visitors, won 8 million visitors. And this year it's aiming for 8 million. So that will be a 44.4% recovery on 2019 this year. 
Last week, Vietnam joined the list of 60 countries which are now permitted to receive group tour travel from China. China was by far and away the number one inbound market to Vietnam in 2019, contributing 5.8 million visitors in that year. So 5.8 million visitors from China in a total market of 18 million visitors. That's 32.2% of the inbound market to Vietnam in 2019. So basically one third was from China. So whatever it's, it's aiming for, 8 million this year, you would expect that it would hope a lot of those will come from across the border in China. Yeah, I mean, and it was interesting because they're setting out a 2030 goal as well, which is to welcome 35 million international and 160 million domestic tourists. Um, and they reckon by doing that, they can be the top tourist destination in Southeast Asia. Um, although I hate to break it to them that if they're aiming for that by 2030, already by 2028, Thailand's saying that they're going to have was it 70 million, 80 million international visitors? And already this year, Indonesia is aiming for over 1 billion domestic visitors in 2023. So I think they've got their work cut out to to be the top tourist destination by 2030. Not impossible, I suppose. It's still all to play for. We're still only 2023. Um, but th- these countries have really got to look at what other rival countries are, are doing because they're not going to stay still. Yep. So that's our projection story for today, Hannah. Let's move uh, across the region to Bali. And this isn't about tourism numbers. This is about behavior and the approach of the Balinese authorities uh, to visitors, not just from uh, around the world. There's talk of uh, implementing a ban on foreign tourists being able to ride scooters, uh, particularly because they, they have been caught often not wearing helmets or not wearing shirts. This, this is an old story. This goes back quite a long time, but they're now saying they're actually going to ban uh, foreigners from, from riding scooters and they would have to use uh, official tour cars or, or taxis or, or grab or that kind of thing. Not quite sure what's happening with that. That one seems to be just sort of hanging around in the background. But the major issue at the moment seems to be the behavior and the response of the Balinese authorities to Russian tourists, Hannah. What, what have you been reading about that? Mm, so the, you know, this started, I think it was with an Instagram account or something where some some netizen in Bali decided to take pictures of all of these kind of offending Russian tourists who were perhaps working when they shouldn't be because they were on a tourist visa or uh, abusing their tourist visa in some other way. And of course, this this kind of thing went viral. There's been a lot of other since kind of foreigner shaming and foreigner behavior bad behavior shaming. Um, but it does seem that Russians and Ukrainians also are kind of being particularly singled out for the worst offenders, um, if you like. And we've seen special operations targeting um, these kind of foreign nationals and just a lot of a lot of noise, I think, in the press about it. You know, I, I think these stories and we've, I think we've, we've talked about this before late last year or early this year about, you know, how, how the media do like these kind of stories about badly behaving foreigners, they do tend to be there as well. And, you know, tourism ministers right now, I think, planning to set up a, a special task force to look at this, but to also make sure that Bali, you know, stays a, a welcoming place. And it's not surprising that they want to do that because, you know, the, the Bali governor is talking right now about, you know, how he wants visa on arrival stopped for Russian and Ukrainian nationals. If you look across to another top tourism island, Phuket, um, right now in January and February, 
Russia's the top arriving market. It's the same for Koh Samui. Gary, you told me that for the Maldives, Russia's the number one market for there as well. It's about 12% of the inbound market. Um, so you do run this risk of you know, suddenly alienating um, a potential top source market versus the bad behavior. And how do you how do you balance that? How do you make sure that tourism is still beneficial for locals? But it's uh, it's a tightrope balance, isn't it? Yeah, and it's also a, a tricky balance as well. I think when you start using the media to 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 filter these stories out into the to the wider world, when you're talking about issues of behavior and you know whether whether what's happening is illegal or not, it just seems to be strange to be using this as as a as a front for the tourism industry at the moment. That doesn't seem to be what it would really need. You would imagine it could just deal with these issues uh, and, and keep them, I wouldn't say out of the media, but just not make them such a big issue as, as happening at the moment, because it doesn't really seem to serve the purposes of anybody. There were stories of yesterday, I think, or the day before, of deportations from Bali as well. Uh, none of this is good news, and it just all adds to a, a sort of cycle of um, a sensationalism and, and reporting that sometimes we'd have to say is probably a little bit low on the facts. Yeah. I'd agree with that 100%. So shall we move to a little bit of an aviation uh, roundup, Gary? Um, and I think you've got your eye on this one, haven't you? What's happening with Southeast Asian aviation in March? Yeah, so some interesting statistics produced by OAG about airports, aviation and airlines at this point in time, March 2023. Now, the reason I think this is quite interesting, Hannah, is we, we are coming to the point on April the 1st. Uh, which, if we go back 12 months, was when most countries in our region started to to reintroduce quarantine-free travel. There were some that were slightly before. We can talk about Cambodia. And, and it was phased through the region. But April the 1st was a sort of benchmark when travel and tourism, as we kind of knew it before, came back into the fold across the region. Uh, and so looking at the, the aviation situation now kind of is a benchmark for, for what's happening one year on. Okay, so airline capacity in Southeast Asia this month is 20% lower than it was in March 2019. So that's a recovery of 80%. It's about 34.8 million seats available across our region. Now, if you remember, Hannah, we were stuck in the region for a long time at around about 33% down. And a lot of that, I guess, was because the, the China market and the Northeast Asian markets, you know, there was not much uh, recoupling happening until about now. And you're starting to see uh, airline capacity between the regions in Asia Pacific is starting to boost. Now, when you look at that, uh, that figure, 20% lower compared to March 2019. There is a difference between domestic capacity and international capacity. Domestic travel, domestic airlines uh, are increasing their rates uh, much faster. So they're only 13% behind where they were in this month in 2019. But international seat capacity is still down 31%. That's almost a third. We would expect that to increase over the next few months, particularly now that China's back in, in play. Uh, you look at the busiest airports in the region, well, no surprise, really, I would guess that uh, Jakarta simply is the biggest aviation market in the region, is number one. Singapore is number two, not far behind uh, Indonesia, which is quite interesting, of course, because Singapore doesn't have uh, a, a domestic aviation market. Uh, Bangkok is in third and Kuala Lumpur in fourth, Manila in fifth. So, you know, the, the major airports that are starting to find their feet again after the pandemic. And I think these statistics show that it, while Southeast Asian aviation is a work in progress, if we'd gone back a year and fast forwarded to these figures that we're seeing now, you know, they, they show that the, the progress is definitely being made. And that recoupling with Northeast Asia and China over the next few months 
should see uh, some healthy recovery rates by the end of the year. Yeah, agreed. I think that's a great roundup. And I will put the link to this OAG report in the show notes as well. So you can go in and look at that. And they've, they've got great stats about top airlines by seats and lot, lots of other nuggets of, of interesting info. Yep. So let's move on to Laos. You, you, you referred to Laos when we were talking about ITB Berlin, Hannah. Mm. We've been talking about this for the last three years is the China-Laos railway. And finally, <laughs> it seems there's some movement on ticketing. Tell us a bit more. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the massive complaints that they have had around this China-Laos railway was the fact that you had to physically go to the train station to get your ticket. A lot of these train stations are not actually in the center of town either. They're, they tend to be a little bit further outside. Issues with parking, everything else, queuing, quotas. But finally, they have launched a mobile ticketing app. Um, and by all accounts, um, from what I have read um, in uh, Tourism Professionals in Laos Facebook group, it seems to be working. You know, you can book the tickets not super far ahead in advance. I think it's something like three days in advance you get your qr code and and then you're on your way um so this is such an improvement to to where they were you know having to to go in queue and i imagine that this is all very much with this eye on finally trying to reopen the railway for passengers to china itself and they know that chinese tourists as we're always saying are very digitally savvy are mobile first and they're going to expect a seamless mobile ticketing experience. Um, so finally, progress in the right direction. Yeah, I think that I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's amazing the progress that can suddenly happen when China reopens. I think we're going to see this across the travel and tourism industries in Southeast Asia over the coming months. We'll see progress on a lot of the bottlenecks that we have seen uh, over the past two years or so, just suddenly evaporating and, and you know trying to drive the recovery from that so important China market, which. You know, back in 2019, it, it was so vital to this region. I think it supplied almost a quarter of uh, travelers to the, to the 10 countries in our region. Laos, I think that the figure was much, much higher. I think it was up around 40% of visitors came from China. So getting that railway up and running, and as you say, making ticketing mobile and seamless, it will be vital in that process. So now they've just got to figure out the immigration side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that will happen, and I'm sure that will happen. <laughs> um, next up, Singapore. And this was a choice of yours, right, Gary? And also interesting, something that they promoted at ITB Berlin. And these are free tours, aren't they? Yeah, you can tell us how they were promoting this in ITB Berlin. I thought this was pretty interesting, given that, you know, Singapore is one of the more expensive destinations in the region. Its recovery in terms of inbound tourism last year, in terms of the numbers, wasn't particularly high. The spending was, uh, and and that is largely because it is just more expensive to, to spend and travel in Singapore. So they're offering 40 uh, new experiences which can be enjoyed in the country for free by international tourists. Now, this is called the Singapore Rewards. This is something that they introduced during the pandemic for domestic uh, market to encourage people to travel and spend in their own country when the borders were closed. This has now been introduced internationally. I think this is quite interesting because we're starting to see across the region, aren't we, Hannah, this use of free and complementary and incentivized travel, whether that's free airline tickets in Hong Kong, now free experiences here in Singapore, Vietjet was offering free connecting flights to Australian tourists to Vietnam. 
we're starting to see this word free. And that, that, that I think, rings some alarm bells that perhaps the recovery isn't going as fast as maybe tourism boards were hoping. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, if you have to start relying on uh, free, um, what will that be? But, you know, on, on the other hand, I, I was having a chat with the Hong Kong Tourism Board at um, ITB Berlin, and we were discussing this whole Cathay Pacific free tickets campaign. And, you know, he pointed out that, yes, there are a lot of free tickets being given away, but most people won't travel by themselves. <laughs> and it's it's that kind of cumulative, you know, particularly for Hong Kong, he was saying, and I think you could apply it to other places, but, you know, that idea of, okay, you've given them a free air ticket, maybe you're going to bring your your partner with you. Maybe you're going to bring your kids or your friend and, and you've got this additional spend that you're going to spend on hotels and attractions and everything else and all that money that would perhaps not have been spent in that destination had the free ticket not been given. Um, you know, it, it, it generates a lot more revenue. What I think is kind of interesting from the Singapore rewards experience is is that they are really trying to promote, um, I think you can see some smaller operators there there's a lot more off the beaten track though i'm getting bored of saying off the beaten track but they are you know they, they are not your traditional tours this is not your gardens by the bay this is you could do a an outdoor escape room game tour around chinatown you can um do a, a chocolate workshop in singapore and that's a, an interesting one um there's other things like exploring other neighborhoods that they, they call it kind of hidden gems. And I guess what they're aiming to do with that is to, again, diversify tourists away from those main areas, get that economic expand into other neighborhoods that might not see as many tourists, but are still interesting, right? There's still that additional spillover spend on, on F&B um, that there potentially might not have been if tourists weren't coming to that area. Yeah, that's a good spin on that. I would agree with that. That's, that sounds positive. And I think the, the Singapore Tourism Board is also under, is financing this, isn't it? So the, the, the mm. small tourism players that offer these tours or these experiences do actually get payment. It's not, it's not they're offering their services for free, but the payment comes from the, the Singapore Tourism Board. Yeah, I presume it must be. So it's another smart way to continue kind of supporting those tour operators whilst, you know, this economic recovery is happening. Because like you say, domestic tourism in Singapore, when it was on, they had the Singapore Rediscovers vouchers. And of course, that encouraged a lot of domestic tourism. But Singaporeans aren't going to be doing domestic tourism for much. <laughs> well, if, if at all now, I mean, you don't really see the stats. But I, from what we've seen with outbound travel, they are <laughs> gangbusters for getting out from the country now that they can. Um, so they've, they've seen that loss, I suppose, in the short term of that domestic travel spend, while still not quite reaching that international travel spend pre-pandemic. So on to a neighboring country, Malaysia. And this is one you found, Gary. And this, I, I hadn't seen this at all. So tell me, tell us all about it. It's interesting. This is a fascinating story. It's very complicated. It's actually a legal case in Malaysia, which was uh, decided last week, I think, or maybe the week before. Okay, it basically goes back uh, to, the, to the federal constitution of Malaysia. That's, that's the issue here. And in 2019, I don't know if you remember, this was actually just before we started the podcast. Malaysia, the government at the time in Malaysia, introduced a new series of departure levy, departure taxes, basically, when you fly out of the country. These were very, very controversial at the time, and they were, they were graded on different levels, depending whether you were flying regionally, domestic, uh, regionally or internationally. Um, but it was seen as another tax, because there are a number of taxes on, uh, that are involved in air travel here in Malaysia. 
So this was introduced in 2019. And a lawyer actually raised a case saying that the departure levy was unconstitutional because it actually removed the right of freedom of Malaysians to travel internationally, which he said was a constitutional right. So this case was actually issued at the time, but it actually was now decided this week after the pandemic. So it has obviously, it resonates with what happened during the pandemic, obviously when borders were closed and people weren't able to travel. Now, the Court of Appeal here in Malaysia actually decided that this is based on a 1979 um, ruling that actually Malaysians don't actually have a constitutional right to travel internationally. That is not a constitutional right. And therefore, the departure levy is constitutional because it's not, it's not designed to either prevent or permit uh, travellers to go overseas. And therefore, his, the lawyer's contention that because you introduce an extra fee and you make it more difficult for Malaysia to travel overseas in terms of cost, that doesn't actually have any ruling on, on the federal constitution. So basically, the nub of this is that Malaysians don't have a constitutional right to travel overseas, which I think is quite interesting. You probably look in, in the legal systems of many countries around the region, you might find something similar. But I just thought the timing of this is very, very important, even though this is related to a departure tax introduced before the pandemic. You know, it does have this connotations with what we went through during the pandemic in most countries around the world where borders were closed and your actual freedom to travel was removed. And then when our freedoms to travel were restored, there were restrictions and limitations such as quarantine, testing, that kind of thing. And it just shows that actually we don't have a freedom to travel. It's not constitutional right. Yeah, fascinating. And I guess, like you say, you know, they probably had to dismiss this because if they hadn't, can you imagine all of the, the millions of people who weren't able to travel overseas during the pandemic suddenly uh, start filing? Yeah, absolutely. Suits as well. absolutely. Yeah, fascinating this. Um, so hopping over to the Philippines now. And so for the Philippines, the, the bigger news there is, you know, they're basically gearing up and coming out with another tourism strategy, um, which is quite heavy on infrastructure and we have already seen, you know, through Duterte, a lot of his focus was on infrastructure. And when the new president came in, the new tourism secretary also came in, she was also talking about how infrastructure was very important. But it has previously been under um, Tieza, uh, which was a completely different governmental authority that had its own completely different budget um, and didn't really as far as I see, have to consult with the Department of Tourism very much about what tourism infrastructure projects it undertook. Well, it now seems that this is going to be resolved um, and that the Department of Tourism will have more power finally over where those tourism infrastructure funds go. So I think that can only be a, you know, a, a positive thing for the Philippines tourism industry to really be able to be a bit more strategic, you know, make sure that that promotional strategy and the infrastructure to support that actually aligns because there's no, there's no point building a, a tiny road somewhere to a town that that is not even on the radar for tourists, um, which, which could previously have been happening in theory. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Felice Axelan of Manila-based Trade Wings, and we discussed uh, developments in infrastructure as part of the, the tourism push. She made some really interesting comments. Uh, we'll add uh, a link to that interview onto the show notes because uh, she made some really, really insightful comments about what's going to be happening uh, in terms of infrastructure that's in place right now and also future uh, projects that are underway. So, yeah, there's a lot happening. There's a lot of investment. And, you know, that country 
uh, over the next 10 years is probably expecting tourism numbers to increase and it needs to manage the capacity, not just at the airports, but, you know, to offer different experiences and, and infrastructure around the country. Uh, a bit like you said in Singapore, Hannah, so that not everybody travels to the same places that they can enjoy uh, different parts of this huge country, this you know, huge island nation uh, in different ways. Absolutely. And the other little nugget that came out in the news last week um, is that the, the tourism secretary has announced that the Philippines will launch an enhanced and involved tourism slogan in the middle of this year that's going to reflect the best of the best of the Philippines and the Filipino brand to the world. So, of course, right now it's it's more fun in the Philippines. What do we reckon? Is it going to be it's even more fun in the Philippines? <laughs> well, I, that that was what uh, I said that to Felice. Is is the fun back in the Philippines? And she said even more so. So perhaps it might be even more fun in the Philippines. I still think it's more fun in the Philippines. It's great. I hope they they stick with that. But it has been around for quite a long time. And you know, new tourism ministers do like to refresh things. So I guess we'll we'll probably see a different angle. Yeah, exactly. So I'm sure we'll talk about that once they release it. Swinging back over to Malaysia and more travel fairs. Um, last weekend was the Mata Fair. So Mata Fair is the largest consumer travel fair in Malaysia. It normally happens twice a year in March and in September. Um, and for the last oh, however many years, or certainly since I've been attending it, and I think many more before that, it's always been pretty much in the center of KL. It's been at the World Trade Center, which was formerly the Putra World Trade Center, PWTC, which is a pretty old exhibition hall now, I think we can say. This year, they moved it to a completely new location called MyTech. I mean, it's still within Kuala Lumpur, but not quite so easily got to, let's say, on public transport. But it's a massive upgrade. It's about three times the floor space. And it was huge, this thing. I was so impressed with it. Um, In terms of visitors, to give you an idea, they've announced that over the three days, so it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they had 180,000 visitors. Now, September 2022, so just the last one, was only 28,000. Um, and of course, this was kind of, re- you know, the September one was still recovering out of the pandemic. Travel agents were perhaps not in a position to be able to spend as much um, on the booths as they would like. But even in 2019, the record figure was a about 114,000. So they've gone from 114,000 to 180,000. Um, just the level of the booth design from even travel agents was really up and level. There were a lot more new destinations who'd never been there before. Saudi Arabia, I think Kyrgyzstan, um, there was even Zimbabwe. It was very interesting, you know, and there were a lot of traffic jams to get there. Um, so there were lots of complaints about that. But I, I think in a way that that almost trapped the consumer that by the time you arrived there, <laughs> you were so determined that you definitely would not walk out empty handed. You know, you're like, well, I've queued in the traffic for one hour to get to this place. I am definitely booking at least a flight, <laughs> at least a, a theme park ticket to make it worth my while. But yeah, it, it's so interesting. You know, travel fairs are not dead in this part of the world at all. No, and that's an interesting choice of venues. Mitek was has been being built for, for several years and it opened, I think, just before the pandemic. It's just around the corner from me, Hannah. I can actually see it from my window. So for me, access is very simple. But as we do see with a lot of infrastructure projects in this city, they're very well built. They, they have great facilities, but access is, is quite difficult. And, you know, that's one of the issues that, of, of public transport here in, in KL. But it is a great venue. And I'm not surprised that people uh, took the opportunity to go to, to Matafet. 
this time because you can feel it. I mean, when, when we're traveling back and forth to, to Calais at the moment, there is, the, the buzz is back for travel and tourism in, in Malaysia. Uh, people are traveling domestically. I was up in Langkawi last week. It was pretty busy simply because a lot of people were trying to, to, to cram their holidays in before the uh, Ramadan month, which starts this week. So you know, it was quite busy up there. Uh, people are traveling. The airports were busy. The flights were busy. Uh, the buzz is back and it's great to have uh, Matterfair at, at a brand new venue and, and see, you know, a, enable the tourism businesses to be able to to project a bit better because that old venue was a bit dark and damp, wasn't it? It, it just didn't really give you that feeling oh, yes. of, uh, of joy and, 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 and fun, really. It was just too cramped. Uh, so that's great to hear. And our last story, touching on outbound travel, and this is one around Switzerland tourism. So... Switzerland Tourism announced that in 2022, their arrivals from Southeast Asia actually reached 96.4% recovery of 2019 levels. So again, that's when you think about this back in the context of what you were just saying, Gary, that the fact that 1st of April really represented you know, proper opening up of countries, but there was still testing to be done, right? When you were, when you were leaving to come back into the country. So the fact that... Um, Southeast Asia reached almost a full 29 recovery, but they only probably did that in about nine months or so. I think is really testament to that that outbound revenge travel demand. I would agree. I think it, we've talked about 2022 quite a lot as this compressed year. As you said there, Hannah, it was basically a nine-month year for travel and tourism. And so a lot of people crammed in their holidays. I guess we'll find out this year as we have you know, the first full, full calendar year of travel since 2019. You know, we'll see how travel patterns change. You know, will they go back to, to what they were like in 2019? Will people travel at different times of the year? What will be the frequency of travel? I think that's going to be a key barometer this year of how frequently people travel. Uh, which was really what was driving growth back in 2018, 2019. But as you say, last year, people took the opportunity to travel as soon as they could. They've not been able to do it free of quarantine or, or free of testing for a long, long time. And, you know, destinations in Europe, such as Switzerland, such as France, where you could get away and, and do the things you hadn't done for three years. Uh, I think it's understandable. The airlines responded, didn't they? They were, they were uh, the capacity was quite good to those destinations. I think Europe's going to be very, very popular this year with, with travellers from Asia Pacific. I think the numbers will, will, will increase quite considerably, particularly with the Chinese back, particularly with Japanese travelling again, and particularly with Southeast Asians looking for, for new experiences, perhaps in destinations they haven't been to before, maybe uh, Eastern and Central Europe. So from what I'm hearing um, from European tour operators at the moment, uh, it's, it's looking quite good. It is. It's just the flights being so expensive, as uh, Shukor was saying. That that might be the only um, dampener, I think, on potential outbound for long long haul, at least. I think it is, but I also think that people are becoming accustomed to the fact that this is mm. the future. That I don't yeah. think it's going back to where it was before. And so, if you want to travel, you're going to have to pay extra on your flight, and maybe you then, you know, you downgrade something of your accommodation or your other spend. Or you just have to be prepared to, to, to spend more to travel. I, I'm not too sure that going forward it will dampen uh, travel, but I think it will dampen frequency of travel. And that's, you know, as I was saying before, that was what was a big driver of, of 2018, 2019. So with that, that brings the show to a close for the week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. And don't forget to send us your thoughts on comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah, and as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com, 
And of course, you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today, but we'll be back next week to talk more Southeast Asia travel and tourism with you soon. Thank you.